So I'm reading from Mark 15, starting at verse 42 through to 16, verse 8. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Aramea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, saw there where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, a Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. Look up and see that the stone has been rolled away. He is risen. He is risen. risen. One of my uh, joys of serving here as the under-shepherd of Jesus, who is the good shepherd, um, is that as a flock... As a group of people, as a family, that we're discovering the no-grow-show reality of living with Jesus. Knowing him, growing in him, and showing him to others. And I love that today's sermon, this Easter sermon, brings us to the end of our encounter with Jesus the Servant King in Mark's account. This is week 45 Okay, we started last year on the 3rd of June, and here we are wrapping up on Easter Sunday 2019 with the account of Jesus' resurrection. And I would like to say that it was, you know, a God coincidence that he made it happen, but no, it's very strategic. I planned it out. And, uh, but but my uh, hope and prayer is that our journey through Mark has led us to a place um, where we more deeply understand um, our Lord Jesus Christ and that our love for him through knowing these indescribable things about him um, will lead or has led to a deeper affection for him in our hearts as we grow in him and that ultimately it, it will or has resulted in our changed lives as we allow the show of the gospel to overflow to others. Reading is one of my favorite things. I read every day um, multiple books on the go at the same time. 
And one of the things I love about reading is a good ending to a book. And I love that Mark ends on some super encouraging words uh, in verse, verse 20 of chapter 16. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied them. I think that's a fantastic ending that says that was a really good book. Amen? But unfortunately, that's not how Mark ends. Mark actually ends on verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The last word in the book of Mark is the word afraid, which frankly is a bit of a rubbish ending. And if this was sent off to the publishers today, it would be sent back with a sticky note on the last page of the manuscript with these scribbled words. Is this the end? Seriously? Please revise, then resubmit. And that's actually probably what happened. Some early publishers, writer types, people that enjoyed reading, read the original end of Mark, verse 8, then they added a few verses on the end to make it end better. <laughs> if we were talking after the service and I said to you, how's it going, eh? Last week, I took the old side-by-side, out for a spin up the creek. I did a bit of mud, and then I stopped in at Timmy's for a double-double with my bud, Sam. And I can't wait for hunting season. I already got me a tag for some moose. Me and the boys are going to head down east, down to the cottage. I'm going Irish now, okay? <laughs> the Canadian accent's difficult. Keep listening. Where we'll settle down with a few two-fours, for a couple of weeks of fishing musky and bass, and then we'll head back to Ottawa. Now, if I came to you and said that to you after the sermon, or after the service, you'd know that something was up. Because you would say, that's not Pastor Dan. <laughs> that's what you'd say. And that's how we know that Mark ends at verse 8 and not verse 20, because from 9 through to 20, it doesn't sound like Mark at all. Someone else wrote it, which is a bit of a shame because the rest of Mark has cool stuff like picking up snakes and speaking in tongues and drinking deadly poison and preaching and signs and wonders. It's a bit like Jesus' followers have suddenly got like X-Men powers, and it would make for a great movie, but it's not part of Mark. Therefore, we must exclude it. A for effort, but for authenticity, we've got to mark it either a D or an E or an F. Because, but then what we're left with is, is instead of snakes and poison and superpowers, we have trembling and bewildered women who are fleeing and who are afraid. Great. Thanks, Mark. Fantastic end to the book. But let's 
back up just a little bit. Let's back up to the Friday night. Jesus, the original obedient rebel, as we heard about last week, is now dead. The temple curtain has been torn in two, signifying that from this moment onwards, sinful human beings have unfettered, unhindered access to God through the cross. It's now close to evening, the start of the Sabbath, and as you know, in Deuteronomy 21 verse 23, when it's coming up to the Sabbath, or maybe you don't know that, but when when it comes up to the Sabbath, you can't have things like corpses hanging around on trees. Okay, those have to be sorted out. Enter Joseph of Arimathea in verse 43 of chapter 15. He puts on his brave hat and he goes up to Pilate and says, I want Jesus's corpse. Now, while I was reading this, I was struck by the thought or the fact that Joseph was part of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and that he was a secret believer in Jesus. And this reminded me of someone else. And so I started researching. And there in John chapter 3, we meet this guy called Nicodemus, who was also a member of the Jewish ruling council of the Sanhedrin, and he was also a secret believer. So there were two secret followers of Jesus in this organization that had taken a public official stance against Jesus. And then I wondered, did they know each other? Did they draw strength from each other in that anti-God, anti-Jesus workplace? Or was their faith so secret that they had no idea that the other even existed? I wonder if they missed out on the joy of fellowship with each other because they were so afraid of living out their faith in the workplace. Maybe they looked around at the cubicles in the office and they just assumed that everyone was anti-Jesus. So if you're a Jesus follower here today, do you know of other Christians where you work? Would they even know that you exist? Is there anything about you that marks you out as a follower of Jesus? Or are you so afraid of public opinion that you hide your faith deep, so deep, and you only bring it out on Sundays when you know that no one is looking, when you know that it's safe? Anyway, back to Joseph and Pilate. Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus is dead, presumably because the other two rebels he was crucified alongside is still alive, because people should last for days on this cross, not just a couple of hours. And that centurion who was so amazed at the point of crucifixion that he blurted out, surely this man is the Son of God, well, he confirms to Pilate in verse 45 that Jesus is dead, then Joseph gets the go-ahead to go get the corpse down. Now, maybe he had the help of the centurion. We don't know this, it's not written in the scripture, but they were both there. And this would be cool because it would mean that the first people to touch Jesus' body after he died represented the two groups who were responsible for putting him up there in the first place, the Romans and the Jewish council. Anyways, Joseph takes Jesus' corpse to his personal tomb, which would have been like 
in some sort of a quarry, and it would have looked something like this. And he and his helpers roll the supersized stone in front of the tomb, in front of the entrance. He wins this race against time, and he gets Jesus into the tomb just before the Sabbath starts. Phew, and then he goes home to the wife and the kids. Little did he realize that there were three shadowy figures watching him and noting where the body was laid. The next morning after the Sabbath is over, the shadowy figures that saw Jesus play, uh, Joseph place Jesus in the tomb are now back to Mary's and Salome. These are the same women who were watching Jesus as he died on the cross in chapter 15, verse 41. These are the women who had been caring for Jesus' needs, even helping bankroll his ministry, like Luke 8, verse 3 tells us, right from the start. So it's no surprise that these three women are the first on the scene as soon as they're able. They purchase spices on the Saturday night, and then uh, as soon as the Sabbath is done and the shops open, then on the Sunday morning they meet at Joseph's tomb, ready to somehow roll away that stone so that they can anoint the corpse and give it the respect they feel it deserves. These women command our attention and respect because none of the male disciples were there. They were all still in hiding. However, much as we respect these women, um, consider this, that the only reason that they were there to tend to Jesus' corpse was because they didn't believe he would rise again even though he'd repeatedly told them that he would. Mark 8.31, Mark 9, verse 9, Mark 10.34, Mark 14, verse uh, 28. And because of their lack of faith, their heads are down. They are looking at the floor. They are looking at each other. And in their grief and their unbelief, they ask themselves this question, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? In other words, let's get this horrible task over so that we can get back to carrying on our now mundane, Jesusless existence. And this is a picture of a life without Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, everything is a mountain to climb. Without Jesus, we only have our own effort on which we can rely. Without Jesus, we only have our own limited resources and nothing more. Our own strength, our own patience, our own intellect, our own problem-solving capabilities. Without Jesus, we, we are destined to living a life of managing one crisis after another, and then we die. Verse 3 of chapter 16 sums up a life without Jesus. But that's not the Easter story. Because if we want to read the radical difference that Jesus' resurrection makes, we just need to read forward one verse. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Nothing had changed. Mary, Mary, and Salome were exactly the same. The tomb was still there. They could even see the stone. Nothing had changed, but everything had changed. The stone had been rolled away. The stone had been rolled away, and that single 
detail, that one thing, that, that, that one particular item in one graveyard, in one tiny occupied backwater of the Roman Empire, makes all the difference to everyone, not just them. To everyone in the world, those people who've just lost their lives in Sri Lanka, this makes a difference to them. Because it means that Jesus rose. And it means that your sin, your past, and your failure need not have the last word anymore. It means that death is no longer the end. But how did they know that the stone had been rolled away? How did the light of this single, incredible, earth-shattering, history-transforming, hell-defeating, fate-changing fact, how did this one fact rise on the landscape of their faithless hearts? They looked up. They looked up. It's because they looked up that they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And it was because they saw that the stone had been rolled away that they entered into the tomb. And it's because they entered into the tomb that they met this young angelic man dressed in white. And it's because they meet this young angelic man dressed in white that they hear the news that Jesus has risen, that he's not here. It's, and it's because they met him that they were told to go and tell the other disciples. And it all started with looking up. And then they heard this. He is going ahead of you in, into Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you, verse 7. So uh, I want you to picture the scene. Jesus' corpse is lying in the tomb. His heart starts to beat again. His brain starts to function again. He takes his first gasp of air. His eyes open. He takes in his surroundings. It's gloomy. It's dark. And he sees this angel sitting there. Hey, Raphael, right? Of course I remember you. It's great to see you. Do you come here often? No, me either. It's, it's my first time as well. No way. It's a small world, isn't it? And then Jesus gives this angel a message to pass on. Okay, Raphael, whenever one of my disciples comes, whichever one arrives first, someone will, could you pass on a message? You will? Great, thanks. Uh, could you tell them that I'm going to meet them in Galilee, just like I told them that I would? Yeah, Galilee. G-A-L-I-L-E-E. That's right. Yeah, just like I told them. You want to write this down? Does it look like I have a pen? Surely you do. You're an angel. You don't even have a quill, uh, a, a quill made out of a dove's feather. Okay, but you will remember this, right? Galilee, meet me there. And then Jesus rolls away the stone and strolls down to Galilee. But of course, Jesus didn't need to roll away the stone, right? He had his resurrected new, you know, heavenly body on. He, he could have walked through that stone like it didn't exist. 
Just like later, he walks into a room which is locked through the walls and freaks the heck out of all the disciples. So he didn't need to move that stone. But I imagine he did so, first of all, because it looks cool. And secondly, so that he could grow faith in his disciples. He did it for their benefit, for that moment when they would choose to look up. And since that time, Jesus' friends have been telling the story of how the stone was rolled away and how Jesus rose again and how he rolled away the stone in their own life and brought them to life. And that's what we saw this morning through this amazing picture story or graphic novel of baptism. Someone spiritually dead has come back to life. Resurrection. But then Mark leaves this story unfinished. He leaves us on verse 8 with trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Why did he do this? Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that the women eventually did go and tell the other disciples who then came and saw the tomb and, and they also believed. But I think Mark intentionally left it like this because though the story is completed, the task is not finished. There is still work that has to be done. There are still people who've never heard the story of the glorious resurrection of Jesus, how he rises, raises our eyes from the drudgery and emptiness of life without him. They've never heard this amazing story of how the stone has been moved and the tomb is now empty. They've never heard that because Jesus rose from the dead and forever broke the power of sin and death, that he can do the same for them too. There are people that have never heard that. And so the story of the empty tomb and the rolled stone needs to be told over and over again by trembling and bewildered followers of Jesus until there are empty tumors in every tribe, every tongue, every people group, and every nation on earth. Because Jesus is not done with his task of creating an army of stone rollers. This amazing story of the servant king needs to be told over and over and over again. And what is this story? Well, chapter 16, verse 6 explains to us, this is how to share the message of the gospel with your friends. First of all, they need to know that what they're searching for, whether they realize it or not, is Jesus the Nazarene. People in your workplace are looking for Jesus, as verse 6 of chapter 16 tells us. And these people need to hear that he was crucified for them. They, but they also need to hear that this is not the end of the story, that he has risen, that he's not here, that he's no longer in the grave. And then what you can then do is you can invite your friends and family to investigate the evidence for themselves. No one has to check their brain out at the door. Don't just let them take your word for it, but, but ask them to look at the evidence to see the place where they laid him. You know, the fact that the Gospels record women being first on the scene is a strong, powerful proof for its truth. 
Because in those days, women in a court of law would have counted for nothing. So ladies, if you're at that time, your, your word would have been meaningless. No one, it, 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 it wouldn't have meant anything. Therefore, if this account was made up, then whoever was responsible for the conspiracy would not have chosen three women to be first on the scene. No way. Instead, they'd have invented a man to be there, a trustworthy man with a good reputation, a powerful man. There has been a lot written about the resurrection of Jesus and about its evidences, and I'd encourage you to look into it. Women being the primary witnesses is just one. One other one which I'll mention now is that the disciples went from being afraid for their life and hiding to 50 days later at Pentecost preaching the message of the gospel with total fearlessness and with conviction. There had to be a reason for the change. 50 days, that's not much longer than from the start of Lent to now. How have you changed in that time? Have you just, you know, have you gone through a complete renovation of the heart or are you much the same as you were then while these people absolutely changed because they'd encountered the risen Christ and received the power of the Holy Spirit and in the end all except one of the apostles died for their faith as martyrs in horrendous circumstances some even being crucified upside down and if they knew it was all a hoax why not just say, I was just kidding. You know, I recant, I reject it. But it was true, and it had grabbed their hearts. Jesus had changed them from being fear-filled to faith-filled. And there are many other evidences and proofs. So invite your family and friends to look into it. The Bible has nothing to fear. And when they come to Jesus, just like you came to Jesus, they are then given a task to go and tell others. But they aren't alone because Jesus is going, he's going with them. He will meet them there. They now have a new goal, a new principle in life that drives them, just like it drives you, I hope. They have a mission field, a purpose. And Jesus will show them what, what their Galilee is, where, where God wants to use them to tell people about this stone-rolling Jesus. And in this place of engagement, in this place of mission, where the fire burns in the belly, they will see Jesus like they've never seen him up until that moment. You do not meet Jesus sitting safely at home, hoping that you don't offend anyone. You meet Jesus when you go out there on mission and you start sharing with him with fear and with anxiety and with worry. That's that moment when you will see Jesus just like he told you. This resurrection life is there for the taking. Earlier, I told you how I wondered whether Nicodemus and Joseph had ever met in that environment that was so dead set against the message of Jesus. Had one of them had the courage to go up to the other and share their faith? Had they ever fellowshiped? Had they ever prayed? Had they created a little secret prayer meeting? 
And that's when I stumbled across John chapter 19, verse 38 to 39. It's the parallel account of Joseph asking Pilate for Jesus' corpse. Only in John's account, we read this. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With, with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. And then in verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, this man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And so we find out here that they did know each other. One was a secret believer because of fear. The other visited Jesus at night. Why? Because he was afraid. But one of them had apparently had enough courage to walk up to the other one and say, there's something different about you. Are you a follower of Jesus like I am? In the middle of a a difficult work situation. And so One can only assume that it was because of their mutual encouragement that Joseph had the courage to go up to Pilate and ask him for Jesus' corpse. It was only because of the strength that they found as a group of believers, a group of two, that they were able to do something absolutely wonderful and actually set the scene for the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. God used them. So let me say this to you on Resurrection Sunday. If you are a, if you're someone who follows Jesus, as you boldly and carefully and wisely wear your faith in the workplace, in the place where you live, you are inviting other Christians to partner with you in a story that would otherwise never be told. Mary and Mary and Salome have invited us to look up and see that the stone has been rolled away. This morning, we have been given VIP backstage passes to see that Jesus has rolled away his own stone, and he's extending his hand to you and saying, let me do the same for you. I'd love to roll away your stone. No matter what sin you have in your past, what shame you carry, what regret you harbor. This could be your resurrection morning. Listen to these words. I thought that I was too far gone for everything that I'd done wrong. I'm the one, I'm the one who dug this, this grave, but you called my name. You called my name all at once. I came alive. This, this beating heart, these open eyes, the grave let go, the darkness should have known that you're still rolling stones. You're still rolling stones. Lauren Daigle. So stop looking down. Look up and see that the stone has been rolled away. So as the band comes up, let me ask you something. Do you need rescue? Does your sin feel heavy? Let me tell you that chains break at the weight of Jesus' resurrection glory. Do you need shelter? Are you an orphan? Well, the King of heaven is here with citizenship papers 
with your name on it and he's just waiting for you to sign it and for him to sign it are you broken Jesus is here to heal you you can breathe his love as naturally as you breathe air in Jesus the resurrected King you have a future of open eyes and brand new sight this is the story of Mark This is the story of Easter, and let's glory in the story of Easter.